0: We learn in the Lamentations that God's blessings and richness is new every morning. And isn't that a wonderful thought today, that we with a smile on our face can gather with the saints, with those of like precious faith, and offer homage and worship to the very God who made us and the one who, not only us, but made all good things about us. It's so good for us to be able to come together this last Sunday in May today. God has so favorably blessed us with weather this morning, with the capability of life and health. And it's so good that we can come together on an occasion now to offer worship unto Him. As you may have noted in the bulletin, and also from the reading just a few moments ago, we'll draw our lesson from the scene that's unfolded before our eyes in the 13th chapter of the gospel according to John. And on the occasion of that reading, you might have noticed that our Savior is the principal figure, the central key that unlocks it all before us. I've entitled the lesson, An Exhortation to Humility, as we consider the nature of that, might we first note some introductory thoughts, as we often do, and then turn our attention more specifically to the text. Isn't it amazing, with the handiwork of God, that you and I, as those who are His creatures, are able to exhibit and display such a variety of characteristics and traits. And we each are well aware that there are those things that individuals can do that can be so very lovely, so very positive and powerful, and it makes us very attracted to them. We like to be around them. We enjoy working with them. They're just a joy to observe and to behold. But by the same token, there are certain characteristics and traits that are rather agitating. There are things that individuals can do and the behavior that they may display that can be very unpleasant, and it can even make it uncomfortable to be around them among those characteristics and traits. Perhaps none more quickly comes to mind than that of humility. Isn't it a fascinating and amazing thing that when there's an individual who is genuinely meek, solely interested in accomplishing that which is of truth, and solely disinterested in selfish matters, that person is a joy to work with, a joy to be around, and a person who is a very dear friend, no doubt. On the other hand, that individual who has a very noted of arrogance, an unquestionable observation and very critical characteristic of pride and who, it so often seems, operates on behalf of self. Being motivated by that, being ultimately pushed forward by it, that person is just the opposite. Often one must look with great care before dealing with that individual for he or she may well take advantage of you or me. Humility. May I submit to you that there is an incident from the life of our Lord that can teach us a dramatic truth, in fact, more than one, about the matter of humility. And it is to that very scene I would turn your attention with me this morning. Some introductory thoughts specifically about that scene might be this. It's often useful for us to focus our efforts upon the setting, to appreciate the scene as much as the scriptures will unfold it. It was in the spring of the year A.D. 30. In fact, in the springtime of that year, by the virtue of the way the Calendar at that time was set before them, would have corresponded to roughly our period of perhaps late March or early April. As that scene unfolded, we might note it was between 6 and 8 p.m. on the 14th day of the first month. Now, for the Jews, for the Hebrews, that specific time frame was very specific, and it was very important, not just that year, but every year, because that was when God had commanded the Passover to be celebrated. It was on that 14th day of the month they were to take that lamb or that animal that had been kept up since day 10, they were to kill it and in that way to partake of the Passover as had been commanded 15 centuries earlier. This would be a very special observance, though, of the Passover celebration. For you see, this is the last one in the flesh that our Savior would ever participate in. Notice what else may well be said about it as that Passover was set before them. This is that same feast that Jesus had dispatched Peter and John to make preparation for not many hours earlier. They had done dutifully as their master had ordered. Now everything was ready. The proper time of day had come. The Savior, Jesus, was now assembled with those who were his closest friends and disciples. As that celebration unfolded, there were two things of note that were unusual about it. First, this was that particular celebration when the Lord's Supper was instituted. Now, for 15 centuries, off and on, of course, but more or less for that long, as they had celebrated it, never had they observed any especial institution using the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, but our Savior, in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, it says, And he took bread, and blessed it, and broke it, and gave unto them, and said, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the next verse, we go on to read, Likewise also the cup after supper, say, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now that was not the typical proceeding for the Passover, and the disciples no doubt appreciated that this was unusual. Along the same line, Jesus said, I will not henceforth take again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, verses 29 and 30. That wasn't, however, the only unusual matter. It is a fascinating and unforgettable thing that you and I to this day keep that one matter. You see, we read of the early church itself who kept the breaking of bread, and Paul even commanded such also in 1 Corinthians 11. This was to be a timeless matter observed every first day of every week until the Savior returns again. There was something else, though different, about that Passover celebration. It has to do with a text that was read in our hearings just a few moments ago. He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. Jesus, you see, at one point rose from the meal, from that celebration, laid aside the outermost garment that typical male Hebrews would wear. As he laid that aside, he took a basin, poured water in it, and proceeded one by one to make his way to each of the apostles, the disciples, if you will, to wash their feet with the water in that basin and to dry them with a towel that he had taken along with him. He was washing their feet. As he made his way, one by one he came to Peter, and Peter, needless to say, was a bit confused, for Jesus was his Lord and Master, and the others knew that as well. We read, however, that Peter vocalized his thoughts. Notice verse 8, Thou shalt never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus, in rather haste remarks, said, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. You see, Peter was well aware that this one who was washing his feet was participating in something that not only seemed unusual, it seemed inappropriate. Thus, he first said, you will not wash my feet. He quickly, however, asked not only my feet, but my head and my hands. Peter's mind was changed rather dramatically. But that still wasn't all in the washing of the feet. Might we ask, what was Jesus accomplishing? Was this, too, a matter that was to be a perpetual memorial, something that's to always be done? We understand that, Pippin, when we come together, we do not have a foot-washing ceremony. We do not make that a part of worship. But yet, when we arrive at verse number 13, I'd ask you read with me verses 13 through 17. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Also, to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. One might quickly question, what was the principal lesson involved in this activity? I have shown perhaps a picture that we can indelibly print in our mind to help us imagine what it was that took place. Now certainly as I found that picture, we should appreciate the reading appears to have taken place indoors, and that picture I was able to find indicates an outdoor, so don't look upon that in every detail as exact. But as we imagine Jesus, the Son of God, washing one by one the feet of the apostles... It does set before us, what was the lesson that Jesus was attempting to teach? Perhaps this is a more modern picture of what sometimes takes place, and in fact, not just sometimes, but frequently. For it is by and large the case that the denominational world, in fact, has foot-washing ceremonies, and it's perceived to be a required part of service, literally, on the part of those that would be pleasing before the eyes of God. What was the principal lesson? Was Jesus teaching that it's a sin to have dirty feet? Was Jesus teaching that it is in fact a condemned matter in order to have feet that are unwashing and unclean? Or was there a far deeper message to be seen? As we consider some of the features yet to be observed, what could be said about the object lesson Jesus taught here? First of all, the washing of feet. That was an exceedingly vital and often apparent matter in the ancient era. The Palestinian region is dry, for much of the year exceedingly so, and as such we understand that the only shoes, if they're worn at all, were of the sandal variety, and hence the feet would become rather dusty, rather dirty. It was a noted and dramatic act of hospitality on the part of any host to make provision for the washing of the feet of his guests. In fact, if that person were of sufficient wealth, he no doubt would have a servant, one of his servants, to wash the feet of those who were his guests. If that person were not wealthy enough to have servants, he may well provide the basin and the water, and the person could wash his or her own feet. In fact, in the book of Judges, that's the way that it, in fact, took place. On another occasion, perhaps, the host himself might humble himself and actually wash the feet of those who were his guests. Jesus makes one reference in Luke 7, verse 44, that on that occasion, the degree of hospitality is what the Pharisee had not extended to him. That was the very occasion when you might remember a woman came. She began to wash Jesus' feet with the tears from her face, and she wiped his feet with the hairs of her head. As the Pharisee, in his own heart, was questioning why Jesus would allow this woman of ill repute to touch his feet, Jesus, though he turned to the woman, he talked to the Pharisee and said, those who have been forgiven most will in fact do the most. She's loved much. Along the line of that discussion, he said to that Pharisee, you have not given water to wash my feet. You haven't made provision in the basic act of hospitality and generosity. We see then that the washing of the feet was a very customary act on that occasion, but it did involve "...the lowly behavior on the part of a person, for that was considered one of the most menial and one of the most lowly of tasks that could be performed, the washing of another person's feet." You might have noted in those pictures that I just showed you, to wash their feet, you must bow, in essence, before them, not as though you're worshiping them, but you must humble yourself to the point of bowing in their presence, being lower physically than they, in order to wash their feet." This object lesson that Jesus presents to us then asks a number of questions. And no doubt your mind has already raced to some of these as well. We understand then that as Jesus was the one washing the feet, consider who this person was who had humbled himself to the point of washing the feet of these others. This Jesus was the very creator of the universe and everything in it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Without Him was not anything made that was made, John 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17, as the inspired Apostle Paul addressed the same matter, he spoke with respect to Jesus in these words, For by Him all things consist, and by Him all things were made whether they be dominions or thrones or principalities or powers, whether they be visible or invisible, He created them all. And yet He humbled Himself in a lowly fashion to the point of washing the feet of these apostles. Not only that, could it not be noted that this Jesus, because of the character of who He was, was Himself worthy of all worship and all glory and all honor. In Philippians 2 verse 6, We read there that though he was equal with God, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In Isaiah 9, verse number 6, that Old Testament prophet Isaiah had so marvelously foretold that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This man was God Immaculate in the flesh. And he was washing the feet of other people. Isn't that an amazing picture? Isn't that an incredible thought to consider the lowliness with which Jesus here conducted himself? May I submit to you that in his lowliness to perform that task, it does teach us some dramatic lessons. First and foremost, let's dispose of that matter that we'd raised earlier. When Jesus made the statement in verse 14, "Ye ought also to wash one another's feet. Did he intend this thus to be a perpetual act in appropriate worship unto God that we wash one another's feet? Many, many individuals around the world would answer that yes. This morning, that's untold the number of food washing ceremonies that take place as a part of worship of one various type or another. It was never the Lord's intent that this was to be used as a literal means of approach to Him. Consider four points that help us, in fact, see that idea. That this is not to be a literal thing done as an act of worship today. First of all, did the apostles know what Jesus was doing? Were they aware of what He was doing to them? They were aware He was washing their feet. For, in fact, Peter rebuked the Lord for that. Notice verse 7, Jesus said, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. If it had been the Lord's intent that this literally was to be the thing requested always of the human family, then foot washing would have been required, for they knew that that was what he was doing. The ultimate lesson behind this, Jesus said, You don't understand it yet, and you don't even know what it is at this point. Apparently, there's a far deeper significance and meaning in that other lesson. That idea is what you and I should latch on to firmly and hold to ever so dearly. Note verse 12. After he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, Know you what I have done to you? They knew he'd washed their feet. They'd watched him. They'd seen him. Apparently, again, there is something deeper to this. There's a greater lesson that the Lord needed them to learn. And may I submit, it's a lesson you and I must learn too. Notice a second thought that helps us see that the washing of the feet literally was not the major idea here. Could we also note verse th- verse number 10, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And you are clean, but not all. Our Savior employed the word clean in a beautiful way, associating it not directly with dirt on the feet implying again that there was a deeper significance to the act that Jesus had just undergone. Notice in the third place, beginning in verse number 13, Jesus does not emphasize, per se, the washing of the feet. What he emphasizes, that deeper lesson, is a lasting memorial, a lasting idea, but it's predicated on that which he describes as humility. It would appear that humbleness, humility, the lack of prideful disposition, the lack of arrogance in one's disposition toward God and others is the major issue that the Savior was here teaching. But notice the fourth place. Do we find anywhere in the book of Acts and those that follow that foot washing was a part of worship? Is there even the slightest record of hint of it? We have record that they partook of the Lord's Supper. We have record that they had preaching and praying and giving. But the New Testament from here onward is wholly silent in any worship service where the washing of feet was literally that which took place. Taken all together, this then was not the Lord's teaching, namely that this was to literally be an act of worship. And it's sad that so many are mistaken relative to its activity. The deeper significance is no doubt this. What about that humility? Let's return to that. Put quite a few more thoughts relative to it, if we might. The first lesson certainly should be for all of us to recognize and appreciate humility toward God himself. Notice again the statement, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Who is my Lord and yours? Christ Jesus. Acts 10, verse 36. He is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. To make that statement, then, if we understand that you and I as servants are not greater than him, then you and I should humbly dispose ourselves toward him in the most great ways. We should act humbly, never running roughshod over his commandments, over the things he has set forth, for he is our Lord. And that fact demands our humility. May I submit to you the vital importance that that thought has. In the sacred scriptures, you and I might remember more than once an individual haughtily lifted himself in position of God. And in what way did the God of heaven respond? In the fourth chapter of Daniel, we read a very dramatic episode of what took place when a gentleman, in this case Nebuchadnezzar, chose to exalt and lift himself and to make himself out as though he were a god. I might remind us all that in chapter 3, one chapter earlier, Nebuchadnezzar had commissioned the building of an image 90 feet tall 9 feet wide and every time the folks were to hear the music play everybody was to bow before it and worship that image and no doubt it was an image glorifying Nebuchadnezzar here was a man exalting himself and taking the homage and glory that rightfully belongs only to the God of heaven how did God respond in Daniel chapter 4 Nebuchadnezzar had a dream We might remember that in chapter 2, he had had another dream about the multi-metaled image. This dream was different. It's the lesser known of his dreams, but this one, in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a tree. It was a gigantic tree. The birds would come and rest in its branches. Great things would take place beneath its branches in terms of the security and protection they offered. As great as this tree was, heaven dispatched somebody to cut it down. Nebuchadnezzar was aghast. How could this great tree be cut down? Oddly enough, though, the stump remained. And as the dream came to a close, the stump ultimately began to produce again. Nebuchadnezzar, what did the dream mean? Daniel told him what it meant. The God of heaven, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to cut you down because you have not glorified him and have taken to yourself the fact of what belonged to him. Might I submit that one of the most well-known things about Nebuchadnezzar's life came as an aftermath of that. Did God cut him down? Did he bring him down to size? For seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lived like an animal of the field. His claws grew long, his hair grew woolly, just like that of an animal. For seven years, he lived humbly. God made it so. And after the close of that seven years, when he had come to his understanding and senses, he realized the lesson and never again made that same mistake. Consider Herod in Acts chapter 12. Here was another man who longingly loved the praise of individuals and men and who enjoyed being worshipped. How did Herod die when he came into the proper place and accepted the words of others who said, this is, It is as if a God. Herod did not rebuke them. He accepted their praise. He accepted their worship. But we might remember that God struck him and he died of worms. You see, you and I must live humbly before God and never take upon ourselves the roles that rightly belong to Him. Never, in fact, behaving ourselves in such a way to thumb our nose at the great God of heaven. Humility. The servant is not greater than his Lord. None of God's commands are ignorable. You, in fact, and I, when we thus dispose of God's commands by saying, well, I'm too good for that, let someone else take that work. I can do better things we fall into the very trap that we find described by way of example in the contrast to what Jesus did. None of God's commands are grievous, 1 John 5, verse 3. There is no task too lowly for me, no task too menial for you. There's nothing that you and I could then say in terms of a work or service to God, I'm too good for that. That belongs for somebody else to do. If the Son of God could wash the feet of the disciples... Surely I can humbly do whatever God asks of me. Could it not also be noted in Matthew 18, verses 2, 3, and 4, on one occasion is another aspect of the emphasis on humility. A little child came to Jesus. Jesus took that child, set him in the midst, and said, "'Except ye be converted, and become as this little child, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven.'" Matthew 18:3. In the very next verse, he went on to say, "'Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child.'" The same as greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you and I thus want to be great in God's kingdom? Do we want to accomplish the most as we can for him? It starts with humility. With an humbly saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9 verse 6. This matter of humility is emphasized on many occasions in the sacred scriptures. In fact, was it not the case that in the Pharisees, this is one of the things that they were lacking in many instances. Oh, it's true, the Pharisees love to pray in public so everyone could hear. They love to wear long robes and have the chief seats in the synagogues, Matthew 23. But isn't it true in that same chapter Jesus said, You're as a whited sepulchre, beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. It's hypocritical. Your life is not genuine. Oh, may we in humility thus strive to simply live inside and out the way that God would have us do. And in that way, we too should be great in God's kingdom, not because we specifically live in a selfish way to make that happen. God will make that happen. He will work through you and through me to bring about his will and thus great gain for his kingdom. As humility is emphasized in this way, one thing might be interestingly good to use to close this aspect of the lesson Isn't it an ironic matter when we lift ourselves up or begin to act in a prideful or selfish fashion? What is this old human body worth? Oh, we know what chemicals compose it. It's mostly oxygen, quite a bit of carbon, quite a bit of hydrogen. If you could distill all those chemicals and ask, what is it worth on the open market? What is your body and mind worth? Those chemicals would bring less than $5. Do you and I have any reason to live in a high and haughty and exalted and lofty way before God? We don't. The only thing that makes us great is the shed blood of the Savior. When God looks upon those who are his children, such as you or me, and he sees in us his Son and the shed blood of his Son and the efficacious nature of that blood, that's what makes you and me great. It isn't Randy Bobby that makes Randy great. Or it isn't, put your name in the same place. If you and I are great, it's not because of what I've done, what you've done. The servant is not greater than his Lord in humility. It leads us to the second lesson, though. Not only humility before God, but what about certainly humility before others? In verse 14, the Savior did say, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. We've already learned that didn't mean about Jesus as a literal part of what you and I must do physically. But now might we ask about the lesson. If humility is the chief lesson, are you and I to then act humbly before each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and before others as fellow members of the human family? Certainly we should. Consider some added points in the New Testament about that idea. Didn't Paul command in Colossians 3.12 that one of those things with which we are to be garbed as those pleasing to God is humbleness of mind? Just as surely, then, as we seek to add those other things like love, we must also endeavor to add to our life humility. In fact, it is an interesting part to consider how often our society and culture does not encourage humility. Isn't it basically a fair observation that in so many instances, culture encourages just the opposite of humility? You lift yourself up. You do what's necessary to gain the end you desire even if it is to trample upon the feelings and thoughts and dispositions of others, even if it is in fact in a way that is looked upon somewhat disfavorably by certain few, it matters not if by that you gain what you want. Now admittedly, some of the commercials on TV seek to accomplish the same end, don't they? It may sound an innocent thing, but have it your way. Now we know there isn't anything wrong with eating certain foods accomplishing that means of filling that need for the body. But if we allow that thought to seep into other areas of our life so that I always want it my way, then I have stepped too far. I overlook the matter of humility and the necessary things concerning it. Just as I said earlier with respect to our service to God, does it not then bear the same here? There is no task too lowly or too menial that I should be willing to do in service to you and the same each of us for one another. It is not beneath my dignity to accomplish anything for your betterment as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. I should not then behave in a haughty fashion. No wonder David exclaimed in the opening verse of the 131st Psalm, I have not exercised myself in thoughts too high and haughty for me. And when you and I make the mistake of failing to do that, we've sinned. For you see, that is not the position of us. Perhaps would it not be fair to say in closing that it is in humility that great service comes our savior promised it as the pharisees were wont to avoid that in matthew 6 they fasted and prayed just so others would notice jesus said do things without that purpose in mind god will take care of the reward he will in fact bless you mightily and did was it not james who said humble yourself in the sight of the lord and he shall lift you up when you and i try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps we quickly fall. For was it not Paul who said in First Corinthians 10, verse 12, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You and I, thus, need humility, and we need it deeply. Because sometimes of a lack of humility, we fail on many other accounts. If an individual comes to me and asks my forgiveness of something, that person has done offensive to me. If humility is something that I lack, it is unlikely I will forgive as I should. I will hold a grudge. I will be unwilling to forgive because I'm better than you. When in fact I am not. We are each simply creatures made out of nothing but dust. And before God, that's how we stand unless the blood of Christ makes us anything different. Jesus took a basin of water as the pristine Son of God, the creator of this universe, washed the feet of those disciples and thus taught them an unforgettable lesson in humility. We should also have humility in our life willing to serve the Lord in whatever way he requests, willing to be there to serve our fellow brothers and sisters and others whom we have opportunity to help. As we conclude the lesson this morning with a few summary statements and thoughts, we've studied about that occasion when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Notice again the uniqueness of that event and the menial way that Jesus humbled himself. Do you and I behave humbly? The first act in service to God with respect to that humility is to simply confess, I am a sinner. To believe that Jesus can cleanse the sins of life, to repent of them, and to come and confess before others that Jesus is the Son of God. And in that act of baptism, others witness your burial and ultimate submission to the call of God. That's a display of humility. Humbling yourself before God in obedience. From that point onward, humbly live through life happy to do his commandments, whatever they be, wherever they take us. This morning, if you need to become a Christian, humble yourself to that point and simply do as the Savior has requested, as he's demanded of you. If you have become a Christian earlier in life, but you have not lived in a way that would be of an humble character, maybe you've acted arrogantly before brothers and sisters or even others. Let them see a change in your life. Let them see you humble yourself again to become what God would have you to be, For you and I, when we try to exalt ourselves, are of little use in God's kingdom because we think we're too good for His service. We each need to be humble in His way. If we can help you today to then have those sins forgiven by coming back to your first love, we'd love to do that. We'd be honored and happy to assist in whatever way we can. If we could pray on your behalf or aid you in your initial response to the gospel, let it be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.